So I was almost going to say good evening, but it's good afternoon. <laughs> I think we're, we often give our talks um, in the evening, and so this is very different. There's uh, light outside as well as the cultivation of light inside. So um, this afternoon I want to talk about our practice of loving kindness or metta as a path of awakening and what that means. And I'll talk first a little bit about the spirit of metta, the spirit of the loving-kindness practice, and then go into a few aspects of um, metta practice as a path of awakening. I think we know by now, uh, for many, again, this is the first... uh, long retreat doing this practice of loving kindness or metta, that it's really a practice of continually checking in the present moment, is my heart inclined towards kindness? Moment by moment. So it's a training. It's really uh, through the techniques we offer, it's a training in having that intention to hold ourselves and others with kindness, be present more. And over time become more stabilized as the way that we approach all experience. And it really is a path because we know that that's challenging in all sorts of ways. And we may, even in these uh, optimal conditions in, in some ways, find that that um, inclination towards kindness or love has its challenges. How much more so if we are responding to personal or interpersonal challenges or to uh, global climate change or to um, other challenges that we may face in in the different parts of our lives. So it's, it's helpful, I think, to, to go back to some to the etymology that we, we have some ambivalence with the, the phrase loving kindness because the etymology is actually closer to uh, that of uh, being really, really friendly <laughs> and having that be one's default way of approaching uh, life. And again, it's a training that the... Uh, The etymology is related to words uh, connected with friendship. There's also in the etymology a sense of um, a kind of swelling or expansiveness. So maybe a better, more accurate account of metta is a kind of boundless, active, expansive friendliness towards everyone and everything. It has that expansive quality, has an active quality, and it ultimately points towards a boundless quality that we, that we explore and cultivate in our practice. Another way of talking about the spirit, spirit of metta um, comes from a Bob Dylan song. So we go, kind of go from the tradition to the contest, some of the contemporary tradition. Some of you may know this song. This is about metta. 
and I, I won't sing it. <laughs> so, so, but, but we'll see. We'll see what, what kind of tune comes out. I don't want to fake you out, take or shake or forsake you out. I ain't looking for you to feel like me, see like me, or be like me. We can have the group do the chorus. <laughs> All I really want to do is baby be friends with you. Another way, maybe I'll post that for people who want to use, take some of the phrases for, you know, out of that song. So there's that, that's really the spirit. It's, it's this, I'm going to use the word training over and over again because it is a training. It's something we come back to. It's something that doesn't always flow easily. But in a way, the reason that metta can work, and this is really our presumption and in some ways our finding, is that at the depths of our being, there is this core friendliness, this core love, we can call it, this core uh, caring. And that this is really um, more basically who we are, that we, we sometimes use, and in the old text it's sometimes used, the metaphor of the sun or the moon, and our core nature is like the sun or moon, and it gets covered over by clouds. And we sit here for a week with glimpses of the sun or moon and a lot of awareness of clouds. And the clouds could be our conditioning, our self-judgments, our sense of unworthiness, our distracted minds, our, our wounds from the past. These are all the clouds. But the, um, again, the finding of our practice is that there's something uh, deeper. And that starts to shine as we practice more. And for many, many of us, the shining is, is known. There's a, there's a very nice uh, poem uh, by uh, Galway Cannell, which, which really talks about this aspect of meta practice in a sense, as I think as Sylvia said, we are actually, the metta practice is a kind of uncovering of our deeper nature. It's not a production because that it's already there in some way and we really uncover it. And we know, I think we know that at certain moments that uh, that shining of the awakened heart is present. And the, in this poem, which is called St. Francis and the Sow, uh, the poet uh, Galway Cannell talks about how sometimes we need to relearn our own loveliness. And I'll read a few lines from the poem. Sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and to retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. That's our practice, really. We are putting hands on our brows and reminding ourselves of our loveliness over and over again, so much so that we might, we might get tired by all these constant reminders. Say, say stop the repetition. It's, I get it. But we really have to do this, don't we? We have to keep reminding ourselves of our own loveliness. 
and keep inclining. And we, we really uh, say the phrases, we incline in that way. And then we listen for that response. And over time, the, that shining awakened heart does shine, does come forth. In a Christian context, Thomas Merton said it like this. He said, first of all, the law of love is the deepest law of our nature, not something extraneous and alien to our nature. Our nature itself inclines us to love and to love freely. That there's a sense that kindness and warmth and compassion is our default setting, very much as Sylvia has said, when we're not uh, startled or shocked or scared that kind of um, warmth comes out. You know, I was thinking of some of my own experiences from a long time ago. Um, When I was probably in my early 20s, my brother and I spent a lot of time in the um, mountains of uh, the western part of Virginia, near near the West Virginia border. And we eventually um, built a small cabin, but we were very um, drawn to that area. And it was almost like people were in the 19th century. And it was quite, you know, what I was particularly appreciative of was the, uh, the basic warmth that was there. It was, a, you know, in some ways it was an isolated area, but there was a basic warmth and kindness that was almost, uh, you know, I remember, you know, I remember hitchhiking and being picked up by people in their 60s, 70s and 80s. And there was a certain naivete. I, at that time, I had hair halfway down my back. And I remember sitting, <laughs> sitting and having meals with people who I met there. And they, they would say, Don, you ever seen any hippies? <laughs> I said, yeah, I, I've seen a few. <laughs> and there was, there was a, but I remember that. There was, a, there was that quality of warmth and kindness. And when eventually we built a small cabin, we um, didn't have to buy any wood. Um, Everyone in the area let us tear down small outbuildings, um, piles of wood, virtually all the supplies were given and actually without even asking for anything. And not, not to romanticize, but there was a sense of very simple, basic kindness, which I'm sure we all know in many of our communities. It was very, it was very striking. And, you know, it's also, um, you know, sometimes that manifests in, in challenging situations. Um, you know, there, I've, I've been impressed uh, reading from a book by uh, Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell, which really is about how altruistic behavior and that kind of metta and kindness is found in natural disasters. That, that it, it surfaces, not always, but more often than not, even though the authorities don't think we should trust people. But it actually manifests. And this is, um, there's a beautiful account of the San Francisco earthquake of 1906 from Dorothy Day, who was uh, eight years old at the time. And this is what she said. What I remember most plainly about the earthquake was the human warmth and kindness of everyone afterward. For days, refugees poured out of burning San Francisco. 
and camped out in Idora Park and the racetrack in Oakland. Mother and all our neighbors were busy from morning to night cooking hot meals. They gave away every extra garment they possessed. They stripped themselves to the bone in giving, forgetful of the morrow. While the crisis lasted, people loved each other. I imagine that many of you have experienced that in some kind of uh, situation of need or crisis. Um, we find that kind of metta. How many, how many have experienced something like this or can relate to that? It's the vast majority of the group, really. Yeah, so it's, we, we find that and we could, it's very interesting to take uh, disasters as data or evidence for our basic human nature. But I think it is. We find that. And so we, we try to cultivate that. We try to really bring about this, this, this quality of metta. And it is what we do here is a moment-to-moment training. We try to have the sense of loving-kindness get stronger. And again, we use the phrases really as supports. What we're really looking for is that sense of warmth, the sense of kindness. We call it sometimes the metta feeling. And the phrases are means to an end. And there are people who do metta who don't use phrases, that they somehow connect with the feeling and let it be there and let it stabilize and get stronger. And so we cultivate that, we practice that. We use these different tools. We really do that every every moment of every day. We're in training to invite that quality of metta to be present, you know, and ultimately what we want to do is stabilize the sense of metta so it's more accessible here on retreat and then increasingly in our daily lives, you know, that we want, no matter what kind of wonderful experiences we have, what we're really aiming for is for metta to be a regular presence in our lives, you know, it's very much like the musician uh, Fats Domino once said, it's not how far out you go, it's how you bring it home. <laughs> very much like our metta practice. <laughs> we want to, we can go very far out, we can have beautiful experiences, but we want to really stabilize it and have it be a resource that we live with. And that, in, and, and that takes training, that takes work. You know, it's not easy. It can feel often um, very dry, you know, we, can <clears throat> we have these wonderful accounts <clears throat> of metta. We can <clears throat> talk about touching the depths of human nature, you know? And then we sit here on our cushions and we repeat the phrases. And I was going to say we repeat the darn phrases, <laughs> right? Sometimes we have that said. Anyone have that sense sometimes? <laughs> so we, um, you know... I mean, there's an interesting irony. I mean, I know people love to come in the meta retreat. It's hard. It fills up like in, I don't know, October or November. Some people came at the last moment on the waiting list. And then you come here and you sit all day saying the phrases. And there is, sometimes there can feel to be a little gap, you know, like, okay, I love it, but it's hard work, isn't it? It's not easy. It it's doesn't, always, doesn't always flow. <clears throat> and yet we, we really, the... Spirit of the metta is to keep on intending 
or inclining to what we might call the awakened heart. It's a practice of continually inviting that to be there. You know, I think of the practice of metta as a kind of knocking on the door of the heart. And every phrase, we intend that the heart respond, that the sense of warmth or kindness be there when we say the phrase or whatever technique we're using. And we, we really, <clears throat> with each phrase, we say the phrase, we stay, have that intention, and then we let be whatever is there. That's the spirit of the practice. It's really a crucial point that our practice is about intention. It's about inclining our being in that direction. It's not about demanding you, Donald, will be loving right now or else you have failed at metta. (laughs) It's more that we incline ourselves. We use a technique, a practice, which we know from experience tends to move us in this direction. And we do it, and with each phrase, we do it and we let it go. It's like T.S. Eliot said, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. We do the practice and we let it be what it is. It's really uh, over and over again, it's saying, I choose to go in the direction of warmth and kindness and care. And so you can see doing a week of it every moment has a big impact. It, it trains us. It really um, shifts our brain. This is from the book Buddha's Brain. This is actually what's happening on the level of your brain, if you were interested in knowing Kindness depends on prefrontal intentions and principles, limbic-based emotions and rewards, neurochemicals such as oxytocin and endorphins, and brainstem arousal. Sound familiar? <laughs> so we are, um, we are almost like you can feel sometimes when we do metta, we are setting up grooves in the brain. And I know that very much from uh, the longest metta retreat I've done is about five weeks, and it definitely... I think it feels when you do a week retreat, but I know five weeks it felt like the grooves were there and one was riding these grooves, these neural networks or these neural pathways, we might say, that get established and we, we, we ride them and they, they open us up in that way. But it's really the power of intention that's so important. Um, one of the retreatants here uh, told me a story of how a basic part of the training of her daughter from age two on was to tell her daughter, keep choosing kindness. It's much easier to a two-year-old. And that's what we're doing with our practice. We are choosing kindness over and over again. Perhaps we didn't all get that instruction at age two. So we have to come back. So in that sense, uh, this practice is a training in kindness, and it really is a path of awakening. And that's what I want to really talk about the rest of the time, that it's a moment-to-moment path, and we go through all sorts of uh, aspects to, in which we develop further in the sense of the warmth or the kindness I was th- I'm thinking of maybe really uh, five different 
dimensions of metta as a path of awakening. One of them is that we really learn better how to meet life with our awakened hearts. We learn better how to do that. We learn better, we might say, how to lead with our hearts, how to meet moment-to-moment experience with our awakened hearts. We also, I think, in our practice, bring together, integrate, I would say, the mind and the heart and the body. And one of the ways this gets expressed is that our metta practice connects with our mindfulness and our wisdom practice and really our way of being in the world. There's, a kind, there's an integrative quality to metta as it deepens. And I'll talk, so I'll talk further about that connection of mindfulness and metta practice that Sylvia talked a lot about yesterday. A third aspect of our practice as a path is that we deepen in concentration, that the mind becomes um, more settled, more unified. And a fourth aspect is that we go through a kind of purification process as we do this practice, that we encounter much that is not metta, that is not friendliness. We work through it and we, in, we also touch further that more pure quality of metta. And the last aspect I want to talk about briefly is that this is a training in being more in touch with our, what we might call our radiant hearts or our radiant awakened hearts. So I want to explore those, those five aspects. One of the things that we do, which for many of us really is a training, is that we learn how to approach each moment with our more awakened hearts. And I know for myself, this was not what I was trained to do as a young man coming of age in the second half of the 20th century. My training was to approach experience in an intelligent, analytic, problem-solving mode which definitely has its virtues. And one can also get a salary for doing that, <laughs> which is helpful for subsidizing meta-practice. <laughs> um, but for me, I think, even though I think my heart was um, really inclined towards opening, and I think my nature is emotional, you know, um, I won't go into my astrology, astrological sign, but I think, I think basically emotional nature, but coming of age with a certain conditioning. And I knew that emotional nature because um, uh, I would be very affected by driver's ed movies. <laughs> as a teenager. And also by, by movies. And I seem to, you know, I seem to go against my conditioning and cry at certain moments. Drivers add movies, which are, you know, are really, really sad. <laughs> they're very, I mean, they're, they're basically trying to scare us into good driving. So, um, but I would say that to really have my moment-to-moment meeting of life be through my heart, metta practice has played a really big role. And I think we learn how to, we learn better how to meet experience by metta, by really, in a way, focusing on only developing this quality of meeting every moment with kindness and training in that. And for me, I needed that. 
you know, and there's also, I'll, I'll talk in a moment about how I think that's also the training of mindfulness, that we also open up to a kind of kindness, to hold experience with kindness. But metta's this very direct way of training us to learn to lead with the heart. You know, and I, I'm, I've been influenced a lot by, by what I've heard from uh, Julia Butterfly Hill. She likes to talk about her own practice, which is not explicitly metta, but she says, can every one of my actions come out of love? And she asked that, I think, before, particularly before significant actions, but that's in a sense what we're learning to do better. We are learning to lead with the hearts, to let the heart be there more and more. You know, and it's, it takes training and, you know, we get distracted and busy and how, you know, how easy is it to, to lead with our hearts? You know, I was thinking of um, um, several years ago, I was working with a group around themes of wise speech. And they're, you know, one of the ways of understanding the um, classical teachings from the Buddhist tradition on wise speech is that we try to bring to every moment of speech uh, truthfulness, helpfulness, uh, <clears throat> a spirit of metta, warmth or kindness, <clears throat> and also good timing. Good timing is quite important in speech. We can have the first three really well developed and have bad timing and everything is a mess. So um, I would do these practices where I would, uh, you know, with this group where we would really work on those qualities. And I found, and we would see kind of which of these qualities of speech are easiest to develop. And I could see that at times when I was busy, I would be truthful and helpful, but not always so warm or kind. And, and it was interesting just to see that. that, that and, and I took to, after a while, um, I put those four criteria on my wall near my telephone. And whenever I would get a telephone call, I would, before I picked up the ringer, I would say, truthful, helpful, meta, good timing, hello. <laughs> you know. And, but the, the metta was really what I emphasized because I could see initially that that was actually not so present. I, did, I, I sometimes led with my truthfulness and helpfulness. So we learn, we learn to lead in that way. And we become able, I think, as the metta gets stronger, to have the metta really be a kind of natural response more and more to all situations. And it's particularly valuable when we have something difficult or distressing happen, that I don't know if we've mentioned it here, but classically in the Buddhist tradition, metta was a, an antidote to fear. And that's where, you know, the, at least the story goes that it was developed and given to groups of monks or nuns who were living in the forest and were scared. I won't go so much into why they were scared, but it was basically a bunch of um, tree spirits who, who, had the, who at first were friendly, but then decided the monks and nuns were staying too long in their forest and decided to produce really, really bad smells and horrifying images. And the monks and nuns went running back to the Buddha, and the Buddha said, time for metta practice. And they did it, and the smells came, again, when they went back and the terrifying visions came, but they were able to be with it. And so metta practice is a very beautiful practice 
that we, I think, naturally, as we practice more, will let be there, almost like as a first responder for distress. You know, if there's distress here, or if there's, you know, distress, middle of the night, wake up, something really bothering oneself, when the metta is strong, we can have the metta be present at those moments. And it's very, very precious. And it's something that it needs to be strong. And we're really training for that so that it becomes more natural. Something difficult happens. The metta is right there. And I think we know that probably from being here. I've heard, you know, I've heard in the uh, group meetings, people saying, you know, I really noticed that um, something which in daily life I would just get reactive and distressed about here I go to metta and there's a totally different way of relating to what I was experiencing that would be distressing in daily life. How many have experienced that? Some here already. Yeah, yeah it's quite a number. Maybe just one other word about leading with the awakened heart. I, I like to say, and this is something I've been thinking about for a few years, that leading with the heart or coming from the awakened heart doesn't necessarily mean being overly nice. Metta is not always nice. So I've been thinking about tough metta. (laughs) The analogy of tough love, you know. And I think it's something we should talk more about. That that tough metta is sometimes being firm when one needs to be firm. Or I was also thinking of uh, Dr. King. You know, this, this retreat often... Uh, happens uh, right very close to Dr. King's birthday, which is a week from today, next, next Sunday. And he was, you know, you can feel the love in his voice, but you can also, he talked about the essence of the movement being the constructive channeling of anger. So not shying away from anger, which is partly what we do when we're nice, but actually being able to be with it and let it be transformed into something else that has the, sometimes the insight or the energy of anger, but's transformed in that way. The second aspect of metta as a path of awakening is that metta becomes integrated really with the other aspects of our practice, with the other aspects of our path. And we can talk about it in a few different ways. We can talk about how loving kindness gets connected with mindfulness practice, with wisdom practice, with our ethical practice. We can talk about it as the connection of the heart with the mind and the body. But there's something integrated that happens as we continue the practice. And we don't always point this out. And it can be sometimes confusing. We've talked about how the apparent, there are apparent differences between mindfulness and metta. You know, that when we do mindfulness practice, we seem to focus more on the arising and falling of different um, factors of mind, of thoughts, emotions. We, we really look at experience rather impersonally. In metta, it's very personal. May I, may you be, be well, be happy. You know, in metta practice, we, we wish for the well-being of ourselves and others. We want that well-being to happen. And it's almost like in mindfulness practice, we just let things be as they are can appear very different, you know. And when we, when we say the equanimity phrase that I say is, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are, can appear like a contradiction, right? Can appear like a tension. How do, how do, we, bring these, how do we bring these together? 
And yet I think this is what we explored with, with Sylvia yesterday. I think as we look more carefully, we can see the ways that, that uh, metta practice really connects with the mindfulness practice. And also that when we go deep in mindfulness practice, it connects with metta. And that the, both of them connect with the wisdom practice. And mature metta, there's an integration that occurs. You know, so with metta practice, we, of course, we notice a lot. We work with the phrases, but we notice what comes up and there's necessarily mindfulness that helps us to know what to do. Okay, I'm using the phrases and self-judgment has come up. How do I respond? And we notice it, you know, and we, we work with it. You know, the guideline that we use in looking at the relation of metta and mindfulness is that we generally say when something is happening that is, comes and goes or passes or that it is sort of up to moderate level strength, we just stay with the phrases. But when something gets really, really strong and lasts for a while, we may switch to mindfulness practice. So we, in doing the metta practice, when we're just staying with the phrases, we nonetheless notice all sorts of things. That we, we uh, also have that attitude of really befriending experience, of really meeting, as Sylvia was saying, meeting every moment with metta, meeting every moment as a friend. That's our training. That's our training that we do. And there's also a way that that's quite, can be quite powerful that the mindfulness practice itself tends to evoke metta, that it's, really, it's something really quite interesting that sustained attention tends to bring out the heart. You know, and of course, our metta can be, our mindfulness can be somewhat disconnected from the heart and dry. But I've been very interested in how when we maybe are with another person and we really notice that person, there tends to be a level of care that comes up. Think of just listening to another person who has some issues. And we just give attention and, we, and there's something like metta that comes. So I've been very interested in how that is with the attention that we have to a tree or to even to a striker or to a bell. That, and I think this is what artists explore, that when we really attend to an object, something of the heart comes out. You know, there's, a, there's a poem that expresses that really nicely by um, Edith, Edith Sodergran. This is from about uh, almost 100 years ago. So it's a poem called Forest Lake. It's about this way that attention evokes the heart. That sustained attention evokes the heart. I was alone on a sunny shore by the forest's pale blue lake. In the sky floated a single cloud and on the water a single isle. The ripe sweetness of summer dripped in beads from every tree and straight into my opened heart, a tiny drop ran down. The ripe sweetness of summer dripped in beads from every tree and straight into my opened heart, a tiny drop ran down. And I think we probably experienced that maybe sometimes coming back after lunch with the sun, you know, just, ah, that, just the attention when we are 
not so distracted, when we are more calm, the attention tends to evoke the quality of metta, you know, for the grasses, for the hills, for, for everything. You know, I was thinking of an experience which was very powerful for me, which happened about 20 years ago. I had, um, I had jaw surgery because um, I was born with uh, my mother's upper jaw and my father's lower jaw, or possibly vice versa. And my bite was poor. And my, actually, my major link with mortality has been through my teeth, which, which I think is good. <laughs> it's a good thing to <laughs> have that be one's major link with mortality. So. <laughs> um, and so I had jaw surgery to correct the bite. And what they do with the surgery, was, it's called orthognathic surgery. And um, um, basically, my jaws are broken and reassembled. And, it was, and I was under general anesthesia. And it's quite powerful. And actually, a friend of mine named Gene Achterberg, who writes a lot on uh, alternative medicine, she said, she said, actually, people don't tell us how close general anesthesia is to death. That it's quite close. And I came out of that anesthesia, my jaws properly aligned, <laughs> But I was in an altered state for 10 days. And I think there was something about that sense of um, fragility of my own body. And I came out of that and I looked at a um, mug and I felt compassion for the mug. You know, and I, I imagine we've sometimes had those kind of experiences where we are tuned in. Maybe it's at a vulnerable time or a challenging time where we're tuned in to the fragility of life. And maybe it doesn't, just stop with people, but it goes to other beings and it can go even to objects, to mugs. And it stayed like that for about 10 days. And there was a sense of the preciousness and the fragility of everything. Which I, I would say is that, is that spirit of metta and care. And, you know, initially it was also, I mean, it sometimes alternated with fear because it was that sense of fragility. It was it kind of went back and forth between metta and fear. So it's an interesting relationship between those two. So our, I think as our metta becomes more mature, as our mindfulness becomes more mature, more mature there's a kind of a, a, a basic caring attention that's available in which we don't have to worry about what's mindfulness and what's metta they really get unified. And they get unified also with the wisdom dimension. You know, that as we, as our metta develops, there's less of a sense of self here and me, uh, self here and other somewhere else. That the metta practice is designed to have a sense of care, move out and to really uh, touch others and have that sense of the, of the unity of life. That's the direction of our practice. Metta also really sets the ground for wisdom in other ways. There's a beautiful, let me see where this line is. There's a beautiful passage that I, I heard. This is from the Tibetan teacher, uh, Long Chenpa. It's about how metta leads towards these other beautiful states and ultimately towards wisdom. This is from the 14th century in Tibet. 
out of the soil of metta grows the beautiful bloom of compassion to be watered by tears of joy under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. And it's equanimity which carries the wisdom dimension. So metta inclines in all those directions. And I think there's also ultimately an integration also with the body. And it's actually, I think, quite important. And I think especially needed for our times. It's not really taught much about the unification of metta and the body classically. But I think it's quite important because we, we're in a culture which, in which we often are quite cerebral and with electronic devices, we can be very, very mental, you know, and, and be on that level with computers it's a very, very challenging issue. How can you be embodied working on a computer? You know, it's, it's a challenge. How can we do that? And, you know, in the metta practice, uh, I'll talk more about this tomorrow morning, but one of the ways that the metta practice can really be more embodied is by actually feeling the heart as we do the practice. It's really to be with the sense of the heart and the body as we practice. And... One of the other aspects which is quite important, which has been important for me, is that in a way, we can be really beautifully developed in our mind, in our wisdom, and have a really open heart. And if we're not grounded and centered in our body and with the earth, we can be knocked all over the place. And so there's, I think, a really important aspect of metta practice is to have it be embodied, have it be grounded, and have our practice in a sense, bring together the, the, the mind center, the heart center, and the body center, something like that. It's something I, I learned a lot by really doing a lot of body practices that started to make those connections with the heart and with the wisdom dimension. So maybe I'll, I'll bring some of that up tomorrow morning. A third aspect of metta practice as, as um, a path of awakening is that we deepen in concentration as we do metta practice, that this is a practice of just doing one thing, which is both uh, a relief and sometimes a pain in the ass. Anyone relate to that? (laughs) It's a tremendous relief. We don't have anything other to do than the phrases all day long. Don't do anything else at lunch. Don't do anything walking. Don't do anything else brushing your teeth. Just metta, you know, all day, all the time. It's kind of like radio show slogans. Um, and it can be quite beautiful. Uh, the philosopher Kierkegaard said, purity of heart is to will one thing. We are only willing the development of metta. And there's something very beautiful, unifying, really connective about that, that can really, can, you know, we can really have a sense of satisfaction. And it really, I think it actually points to really the way that maybe a better translation for the word samadhi, a better translation than concentration, is more unification of the mind or kind of gathering of our being. And that's what we're doing. We're gathering everything in the spirit of metta. Maybe just a few further words about concentration because I think Heather is going to talk some about that. Uh, Heather, Heather Martin, the other Heather than the one sitting on my right. <laughs> we'll talk about that uh, tomorrow some. But, but just to say that um, there's an art form to doing a samadhi practice or to doing a practice in which we do the same thing over and over again. And it really is, um, sometimes it just 
I think in my own experience, it really, I really had to learn all the different mistakes that are possible in doing the same thing over and over. Some of the so-called mistakes, they're really just, it's really just part of the training that we learn, how can I keep on doing the same thing and do so with some ease as well as focus? How can my doing the same thing come out of relaxation? One of the secrets about, about concentration practice is that for it to deepen, there has to be a deeply uh, relaxed or there has to be a very strongly relaxed quality to our practice. We, in a way, we keep the phrases going, but we, we look to see if there's tension. We look to see if there's striving. And sometimes there can be, definitely. And I think real, they're having very much the spirit of, I say the phrase and then I let go of the results over and over again. There's something about that. I, you know, that sense of ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. I say the phrase and there's some relaxing that I do. I let whatever happens happen with the practice. So we keep coming back, but we try to do so in a relaxed way. We watch where there's judgment. We watch where, oh, I'm really not doing well. You know, and we notice that judgment and try to let go of that. And we just keep coming back in that relaxed way. We could say that there's a kind of a balance of being and doing with metapractice. If it's only doing, we want to invite more of the being quality. If it's only, uh, I'm saying these phrases over and over again, we can have a, a sense of straining there. And then we would say, let it be more a sense of being present. Let the phrases be gentler, not so adamant, not so much uh, insisting on what should happen. Let the phrases just come. You know, and sometimes, so sometimes we can lighten up on that sense of straining or striving. One method of working with um, concentration practice, which has really been helpful for me, which I think is appropriate at this time, because there's a certain amount of effort necessary at the beginning, is to have a sense that this is a mysterious process. And to have a sense at the beginning of a sitting, you can say, I'm gonna do the phrases, but I'm gonna rest in the mystery of how this occurs. I'm gonna really let that sense of the mystery be present. And that can bring in some of that relaxed quality. And it's not so much, I'm doing this to get loving. I'm doing this to get loving, get loving quickly. You can see the inner contradiction and natural tension which develops with that. So, so having that sense of mystery can be really, really helpful. And the process is mysterious. You can have a distracted mind in one sitting, in the next sitting you can have gushing metta. You know? and, and you don't know what happens. You know, the first metta retreat I ever did, I, it seemed dry. And then one breakfast, I wasn't even saying the phrases and I found myself saying, I love you, just without any prompting, not even saying phrases. And that was mysterious. How did that happen? How did that, how did that occur? There's a sense also, this is really the fourth aspect of metta practice as an as a aspect of purification, has an aspect of purification, where when we stay with the process, we go through things. That it's not simply we incline towards metta and there's a linear progression of becoming more and more loving. Has anyone had that linear pro- progression in your experience occur since you came here? Just 
a, a straight graph towards more and more metta. It's right, it's up and down, isn't it? It's up and down, it's all over the place, it's unexpected. And sometimes things happen that parts of ourselves come out and we say, where did that come from? Or how did that occur? People have dreams on metta retreats, which are sometimes quite intense. If you find yourself as an ax murderer in one of your dreams, don't worry. It's quite common. <laughs> yeah. um, but there, the dreams are sometimes like that. They come and they can be very strong. I remember on my five-week metta retreat, one morning, I woke up in bed at 3 a.m. out of nowhere and looked at my entire history of intimate relationships for two hours. I hadn't been thinking about them at all. It just came in the middle of nowhere, came right there. I sat up stark in bed and contemplated, and then I, after two hours, I went back to sleep and didn't think at all about it for the rest of the retreat. <laughs> Things happen like that, right? There's, you know, there's a sense that we, we move Uh, in a sense, both towards that more pure quality of metta, and then things happen which are, uh, in a way, aspects of our conditioning, our judgment, our wounds, our difficulties, um, our our material. You know, and if, if, um, you know, we can think of this as purification, we can think of it as transformation. We can think that the challenging parts of our experience get transformed in metta practice. One person, one teacher, I remember a few years ago, he likened metta to an all-purpose cleanser. <laughs> and and they t- metta retreats tend to be a little more all over the place and wild than mindfulness retreats we have found. But don't plan it out that way. <laughs> it, it occurs... And so things appear, we can notice sometimes, we can sometimes feel the area around the heart can sometimes feel hard as we do metta practice. We can feel the heart be inaccessible. We can feel judgment a lot sometimes. It's a big theme on on retreats to find oneself being self-judgmental or judgmental of others. You know, there's a lot of, you know, we don't have so much happening here and we have people around us. So it's very natural that we will tend to become judgmental. Someone comes in late, someone eats a lot, has anyone noticed? <laughs> in a meta retreat, there you are in the dining hall making snide comments about how much food someone took. Does anyone relate to that? <laughs> okay, okay, fewer fewer honest responses on that one. <laughs> okay. And we watch what occurs. You know, we watch what occurs. And in a way we I would say we purify our hearts. We we have our hearts. This is really what Larry was talking about last night. We, we, our metta tends to be less connected with attachment. You know, that it, tends to, it comes to be more and more a kind of unconditional caring, an unconditional kindness that we have available. It's not dependent on this or that. That's a kind of purification as well. And the last aspect I want to mention is that when we think of metta as a path of awakening, what that awakening means as we deepen is that we touch more and more our radiant hearts, which is actually connected with our awareness and our wisdom 
and our bodies, we touch more and more those depths. I learned just a few days ago, I think from, from Heather Martin, I think it was maybe, maybe from Kathy, I forget. Maybe it was from Kathy about Achan Semedo. Yeah, from Kathy, that um, this is what we talk about in the yurt when we, have, when we eat together, that she told me that Achan Semedo uses the phrase maha metta, this great metta, the metta that starts to become radiant, that, is, that touches, touches our depths, that we can have that sense. And in the, in the ancient text, it's talked about as uh, connected with the quality of our mind and heart that is brightly shining. And there's a technical term, the brightly shining factor of mind and heart that's there, that's beneath everything. And that's available to come out as it were. And that's linked with metta in the classical text. You know, it's... Um, Scholars think that it's actually an antecedent of the very concept of Buddha nature, of a deep nature that encompasses wisdom and love and awareness that is really uh, taken to be our birthright. And it's said that the, when the mind and heart become liberated by metta, they shine and glow and radiate like the moon. This is what we touch increasingly. And it's said that everyone has that brightly shining quality in them, even if it's not manifesting, that it's universal, that it's there really for everyone. There's another beautiful story of, um, from the uh, Buddhist tradition of how the practice of metta leads to the sense of interconnection, of wisdom, that they, there were a bunch of monks who lived together and they had done so much metta that they decided that their minds were merged, their minds and hearts were merged. And they, they said, we will only take one name. And so they took the name of the eldest of them whose name was Anuruddha. And one day the, Buddhas, the Buddha came to visit and he says, how are you, Anuruddhas? <laughs> and how is it, Anuruddhas, that you are living together on friendly terms and harmonious as as milk and water blending together, regarding one another with the eye of affection. And then the elder responded, Buddha, we have diverse bodies, but we actually have only one mind and heart, and we have developed it through metta. <laughs> so it could be an instance. And I think we know that. I think I know that people that I've been very close to, you know, yeah, I'm sure this is almost universal, can think the same thoughts, sometimes have the same dreams, don't need to use words. And there's a merging of the mind and heart when there's care. That's quite beautiful. That's an expression of that, of that depth. And I was thinking also of uh, the teacher uh, Deepama. Some of you know uh, a Bengali woman who came to the U.S. a few times. And uh, Sylvia, she stayed at Sylvia's house, didn't she? And she also, when I was living at the Insight Meditation Society, uh, her family stayed at my house where I was living. I got to meet her a lot. And, and she was once asked, she was a diminutive woman who only started meditating in her 40s. She had had a great amount of uh, personal loss, uh, the loss, what, of a child and I think of her husband. And she was, before she started practicing, she was actually close to suicide. And she practiced and she went very deeply and quickly into it. 
and became one of the great, really, meditation masters of the 20th century. Had a profound influence on a lot of people. And once Jack Kornfield asked her, what is in your awareness? And she said, this was her answer, in my mind, there are three things. There is concentration, there is metta, and there is peace. That is all. It points to those potentials. So let me end with, I think, just reading another expression of that uh, radiant awakened heart. This is from the text we've been looking at and, and chant, starting to chant at nights. This is from our, our Metta Sutta. I'll just read a portion of it. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. This is the path that we've chosen to walk on. What I'll invite now is just uh, a minute or two of being quiet and I'll invite you to reflect on what may have been helpful or sparked something from the talk. Maybe whether there's any intention, maybe a sense, maybe I'll give my practice this emphasis or shift in some way if there was something that struck you from the talk. And it may have been something that struck you from the talk that is about something personal, just to invite what, whatever was important for you that may, that may have come up, just to sit with that and any intention for your practice that comes out of, out of this last period together. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. So I'll invite a continuation of our practice, whether seated or walking, standing or lying down. So thank you so much for your kind attention. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
Thanks again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.